Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast, a podcast in which my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory and, you know, whatever else is on our mind. Um, uh, how are you doing, Sam? Doing well. About to head to the airport to spend a week in Italy, so I'm doing quite well. Oh my goodness! Uh, this is uh, this is uh, extremely, extremely, uh, the extremely decadent life of a law professor. I'd say. Uh, who do we have with us this week? Uh, it's Gary Gerstel, uh, and he's a historian at the University of Cambridge who has a new account of how neoliberalism conquered us, and you know, as I start say at the start, how we got the erroneous ways of David Schleicher, among many other good- things. It, it, it reminds me of the old joke uh, um, uh, that in which uh, the person sitting in 1933 uh, reading two different newspapers, uh, one um, uh, Jew, Jews reading two different newspapers, one reading the Nazi newspaper, the other one reading the Yiddish newspaper. And one says, how could you read that Nazi paper? So I read your paper. We're getting killed. We're getting destroyed. <laughs> I read this. I read. I read the Nazi paper, and we run the world. Um, so um, it is. Uh, it is w- w- in that spirit that I enjoy this episode very much. Actually, this is the first episode that I left halfway through, so I have no idea if at the end of the episode Sam and Gary completely slag me. So I'll have. To, I'll find out at the same time as you do, listeners. No, I, I want to say for the record that I only trolled you uh, for your beliefs while you were present. And uh, we, but we exactly. got very deep in the back half, and I encourage listeners, if not to skip the first half, then to make sure and last the whole time because it is, it it gets it gets very profound, if I may say so myself. Enjoy, uh, enjoy Italy, Sam, and have a great and this is a great episode. Uh, let's let's get to it. Our guest today is Gary Gerstel, who's been Paul Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge uh, for some years and before that taught in the United States. He's uh, one of the leading historians of the United States of our time, and his much-discussed new book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, which Oxford published in March. Now, this is going to be an epic discussion, not only because the book is so important, but because it's going to allow us to identify how my co-host, David, uh, has acquired some of the debatable beliefs uh, that as a neoliberal he holds. But we want to begin by giving Gary just a chance to lay out what the book's about. This is a legal theory podcast officially, so I'm going to ask a couple of leading theoretical questions, but mainly just give us a sense of what you tried to do. So the the first question I want to ask is, what is a political order and what happened in the shift from the, the New Deal political order to our current neoliberal one? A political order is a... Um way of thinking differently about uh, political time in in American history. We are so obsessed in America with the two, four, and six-year election cycles, and necessarily so, because they are very consequential. But not all significant political developments happen within those cycles. And because we become so uh, focused on those cycles, longer developing trends uh, sometimes escape our attention. And a political order, uh, the idea is is that it's an effort to think about longer sweeps of American history 
The New Deal order that I write about arose in the 1930s and collapsed in the 1970s, approximately a 40-year span. The neoliberal order arose in the 1970s and collapsed in the or fractured in the second decade of the 21st century, similar period of time. And I don't mean to suggest that all political orders have a natural lifespan of, of 40 years. I wouldn't want to make that claim. Uh, but a 40-year period, 30-year period, one and a half, two generations. Uh, and a, a political order is, uh, uh, is uh, an era in which uh, one political party uh, comes to dominate uh, politics. Uh, these are, it requires advances across a broad front. It requires, of course, electoral success, capturing the presidency. It requires uh, networks of policymakers, uh, think tanks, uh, well-funded donors to do anything in American politics uh, is an imperative. Uh, political orders have an ideological vision, which need to sell people on the good life in America. They have to be able to sell a vision of managed capitalism will make you strong or Bring the market will make you vigorous. They have to be able to translate that into terms that ordinary people can can understand. So, at the core of a of a, a, a of a political order is a fairly straightforward and simple idea. In the New Deal, it was capitalism left to its own devices is chaotic, destructive, uh, and a strong state is necessary to manage it in the public interest. At the core of the neoliberal order is really the opposite idea that. Uh, states interfere with markets and strip away uh, invention, entrepreneurialism, growth, productivity, freedom, uh, and that the core project in politics should be finding ways to remove government from politics and allow markets, which are more so-called natural institutions, uh, to do its work. A sign that a political order is triumphing in, in my telling of the story uh, is when uh, the opposition political party that on principle should be opposed to the core idea of the rising political order feels compelled to acquiesce uh, to the core principles of, of politics. And so Eisenhower plays a significant role in my story. What happened when the first Republican president elected in in 20 years came into office. Was he going to roll back the New Deal or was he going to acquiesce to its core principles? Some things got rolled back, but the core principles endured, in, including a remarkably high uh, progressive taxation system. Uh, and I treat Clinton in a similar way to Eisenhower. In fact, I call him the Democratic Eisenhower, someone as important, even more important than Ronald Reagan in terms of securing the ascendancy of the neoliberal order. He felt compelled to bring the Democratic Party aboard the neoliberal agenda because he felt it was the only way forward. He was acquiescing to the core principles of Reaganism and neoliberalism. And when the opposition party feels compelled, even when it has the presidency, even when it has political power to obey these constraints and live by these principles, that to me is a sign that a political order has succeeded and triumphed. So you visited Yale the other week, and I'm going to ask the question I asked then, just because I, you know, liked the question and I liked your answer, and I, you know, want uh, I, I want to hear it again. Uh, it, it's really about um, what you think capitalism is. So 
as you said, political orders, or at least these two, um, seem to be about the relation of government to capitalism. Um, and there's a reversal from one political order to the other. Um, and it just strikes me that that's a very different way of thinking than the group of, of people who, you know, really made neoliberalism a category of analysis. And I have in mind Marxist theoreticians like David Harvey, because they would say there are these, um, you know, succeeding orders, but order is provided by the form of the economy and the changing form of capitalism, not the, you know, the ideas about it or what government is doing in relation to it. Uh, and so they would say the New Deal order was one form of capitalism and neoliberal was its neoliberalism succeeded it. Uh, and I just want to hear um, if I'm right, you know, why it's it's better to, in a sense, treat capitalism as something that's that is outside political order that's affected and shaped by it. Um, rather than the source of political order, you know, and its changing versions? Well, I don't know if I would say that um, uh, capitalism is outside of political order. It's it's integral to it. I, I wouldn't want to suggest that uh, the, the New Deal in some way uh, stood outside capitalism. It was it was expressive of one form of of capitalism and neoliberalism is expressive of another form of capitalism. Uh, but I think the problem with uh, a, an approach of the sort that um, Harvey takes is that it makes politics uh, incidental to the economy. Uh, and uh, the real action is going on at, at the economic level. Uh, and politics is in some is in most ways epiphenomenal. It's it's not it's not integral. The movers, as you suggested, are all in the hands of capitalist elites uh, and their allies. And there, you know, there have been um, not just David Harvey, but schools of American historiography that have interpreted the New Deal uh, in this way. Uh, I think most prominently uh, a school that was very prominent when I was a young scholar, uh, and it's something that you had to contend with if, if you were working on the 20th century. It was a school of, of corporate liberalism. Uh, basically, uh, all liberal politics of every sort was driven by capitalist imperatives. Uh, and the people writing in this school, like uh, Gabriel Coco, James Weinstein, Robert Sklar, um, uh, they had interesting things to say about the relationship of capitalism to politics. Ronald Radosh also wrote in this vein as a young scholar when he was on the left. Barton Bernstein did well, but I think their effort to tell the entire story of the 20th century uh, through capitalist lenses uh, failed. And one sign of that is that the School of Corporate Liberalism, which no graduate student in American history could afford to ignore, uh, one doesn't hear about it anymore today. It's been ignored. It's ignored. It's been completely dropped. It's It, it seems irrelevant. 
And I think that's because it did not accord uh, politics uh, enough autonomy in relationship to capital uh, and economic systems. Uh, and in my telling, the politics is able to not supplant capitalism in America, but to organize it in such a way so as to redistribute the fruits of capitalism to a far greater public, to lessen the inequality between rich and poor, to insist that there is a, a common purpose to American society that um, is greater than private desire and, and, and private interests and, and corporate interests, and that private corporate interests must, in certain circumstances, be subdued and be made to submit uh, to political will. And what is this political will? It can't simply be understand understood as the playing out of, of a capitalist project. Uh, there was a labor uprising in the 1930s. The New Deal that we remember is the New Deal that organized labor made in a very meaningful way through its revolt in 1935 and 36. It was able to impose its will to a certain extent on the economy and on politics. It compelled capitalists to compromise with the poor and with labor in, in, in ways that brought America the uh, greatest period of egalitarianism, speaking economically, in the 20th century. Uh, and this became a very different period of capitalism and a very different relationship of politics to the economy than what than what prevailed into in the neoliberal order and so simply to treat the last 80 or 90 years as a successive unfolding of capitalist imperatives driven simply by profit making and technological change and um the inner workings of capitalism itself i think um grossly underplays the significance of politics and the need to understand that politics has an autonomy and a capacity up to a point uh, to manage and govern capitalism according to different agendas. And that is the view that I, I try and, and convey in the book. So I want to ask a question about whether the neoliberal order ever happened. And that's the question I want to ask, which the book is about. And so one of the things to be a political order, I take it, is that the ideas the ideas that have to suffuse um, politics broadly and not just a few policy areas get dominated by a school of thought, but it goes across everything. I mean, but the book as it, it, it focuses very heavily on the regulation of finance and to a lesser degree antitrust. Um, uh, and I study state and local government. And one of the notable things about the period that you discussed, the 70s and 80s, the rise of the neoliberal order, is that uh, you start seeing a much greater reliance on government regulation and planning. So land use building of stuff becomes heavily regulated in exactly this period. Um, and it becomes, go, we go from a period of growth machines dominating cities to a period of um, intense regulation of building. Um, occupational licensing takes off such that 25% of all jobs are now uh, governed by licenses, licensing. Um, state environmental law makes building new infrastructure and state investment more difficult. These changes are all conservative. Um, they limit um, uh, building, they uh, they charge access to for rich suburbs, they challenges to existing professions, they're all conservative, but they're not pro-market 
which is what I take to be the central idea of what makes the order neoliberal as opposed to conservative, is that it's like an idea that it's like a that like it's kind of an attitude towards that the the moral superiority of market ordering. And none of these changes are pro-market ordering. Similarly, as Matt Grossman has shown, the size of state governments doesn't shrink. Um, even in right-leaning states during this period, it gets devoted to new issues, uh, more Medicaid, more public, empo- public employee pensions, less roads, um, but not shrinking. Um, even for a truth, even trade liberalizes way more in the New Deal order than it does in the post-New Deal, in the neoliberal order. Um, um, uh, uh, free capital flows start really going, you know, in the kind of end of the Bretton Woods system, which is a little bit before your period. So is your story of a neoliberal order really something about the kind of the Carter deregulations and finance and not about uh, ideas that went across all of American governance? Well, the uh, a government is in America is a very complex edifice, and in, in an earlier book of mine that you may be familiar with, um, uh, Liberty and Coercion, Paradox of American Government from the Founding to the Present, uh, deals a lot with the federal dimension of government. And one of the points that that book makes is that all levels of government are not always operating in conjunction with each other and moving in the same direction. So. Uh, there certainly is um, opportunity for um, uh, governments in various ways to move into different directions during the neoliberal era. I would also say that, and I probably don't analyze this sufficiently in the book, uh, uh, what's left of a political order when it collapses? Um, I'm thinking of the New Deal order here. Uh, It doesn't simply go away. You are right. Neoliberal uh, advocates and Grover Norquist's, I love this phrase, he wanted to shrink the size of the federal government to the point where he could drown it in a bathtub. If that's our measure of neoliberal success, obviously, (laughs) uh, they were not successful. And, you know, Social Security was not dismantled. Um, and, uh, uh, And other elements of welfare, although some elements of welfare were dismantled, other elements continue as well. But I also think it's uh, too simple to say that um, state government and its uses was alive and well at the local level uh, while something else was going on at the federal level. Uh, It depends, uh, you know, what our examples are of of policy and neoliberal policy. Uh, If we think of charter schools, for example, I see this as a profound local expression of the neoliberal impulse. Um, all kinds of uh, tax uh, rebates to allow um, uh, and 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 tax forgiveness to uh, to attract enterprises to uh, to one's local area, uh, so as to promote an investment and incentive and 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 economic growth. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. Uh, where your figures are coming from on on global trade. Uh, Certainly there is global trade during uh, the New Deal order. It is uh, international order after all, Uh, but the growth and and volume of international trade is quite dramatic in the uh, neoliberal era. I just meant tariff levels, but sure. Tariff levels fall really dramatically during the New Deal order, but that's all I meant. Yes, uh, but the if we're if we're measuring by trade, there's certainly tremendous increase in in the volume of international trade, and 
and the world becomes a global marketplace in the way it had not been in terms a universal global marketplace, a single more a global marketplace in the way it not had in the way it had not been before. Um, it's not, and on the federal level, it's not just a, uh, finance plays a big part in this, but the and and deregulation is the core policy initiative of the neoliberals as it comes to be uh, practiced in the United States. Uh, but this extends uh, far beyond finance. It extends into uh, communication. Uh, it extends into the way in which uh, welfare is being doled out in in many instances. Um, and it also ex extends into the demolition of organized labor, which is not usually included in the deregulatory impulse, but I do include it as an expression of, of, of deregulation and the decline of organized labor everywhere. So that even uh, on local levels, its ability to uh, participate in politics, to exercise power and influence against corporations becomes but a shadow of what it was able to exercise during the heyday of the New Deal order. And this affects all levels of government, with the possible exception of, of, of public employee unions, which are operating on a somewhat different trajectory and don't really get hit hard until Scott Walker and others uh, begin to attack it in the 21st century. But ultimately, they too come under this that kind of pressure. Uh, the inequality that becomes the cardinal, a cardinal feature between rich and poor um, in, in the neoliberal order affects all levels of life, all walks of life, uh, every uh, corner of, of the country. So in that way, I would say that the principles of neoliberalism are, are present at the local and at the state level, even as we can identify state initiatives that uh, are experiments that are what Brandeis called laboratories of democracy. These are always going on in some form in American society. And they were going on uh, in the neoliberal order as well. And it's a mark of the diversity of American society and the diversity of the states, uh, a kind of um, freedom to go your own way, so to speak, uh, that has always been a part of American federalism. Gary, clearly you're right about all that. And, you know, it, it, no one would you know, suppose that these political orders are just like perfectly coherent and that there aren't going to be, you know, exceptions and, uh, you know, tendencies that, that don't fit or are intention. And, and I take it that that's, that's also part of your response to Marxism, that we can't just infer from some alleged coherent kind of um, stage of capitalism uh, and and just get the policy picture because there are going to be lots of fights at lots of different levels on lots of different issues. But the overall libertarian direction is clear and obviously uh, that has, you know, that its toll has been uh, dreadful. What I want to, you know, we want to get to the novel claims in, in the book, which are for a historian like me, you know, the most exciting part. But it, it's worth noting that you know one of the frustrating features of the book for for some neoliberals themselves could be that this in a way book mainstreams the concept I just want to you know recall for listeners that just four or five years ago the very concept of neoliberalism 
was taboo. And there was an attempt to kind of push it to the margins. You go back to summer 2017 when John Chait in New York Magazine wrote his piece uh, called How Neoliberalism Became the Left's Favorite Insult of Liberals. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think that caused a stir in our guild, Dan Rogers, the next winter. Uh, published in Dissent, The Uses and Abuses of Neoliberalism, which again was a kind of quarantine effort. But it does seem that the experience of Donald Trump's presidency has caused those voices to get drowned out just by a, an emerging consensus that we we need some take or other on neoliberalism. It's very real. Uh, and uh, David's views are very real. So I, I, I guess I, I want to get you to reflect on like um, your relation to the, this national discourse of neoliberalism, because what I see you doing is providing a, a kind of first attempt to give us, you know, some novel claims, but also a kind of synthetic uh, view about this very real era of history that it was almost unmentionable a few short years ago. Was it Donald Trump's presidency that that made made this you know that lifted the taboo, or was, were there other f- factors? I don't know exactly what lifted the taboo. I will say that my calling the, this the rise and fall of the neoliberal order was a risk on my part and a and a provocation to some for for precisely the reasons you mentioned because I didn't know how it was going to be received, and uh, you know the book has generated. Um, a lot of feedback and and debate, and there have been uh, there have been uh, there's been pushback on on some of the claims which we can talk about. But I've been surprised by the receptivity to the calling this the neoliberal age or the neoliberal order. There's been less pushback on that than I expected. Now it's also true that the professional historians haven't really weighed in yet in print, uh, not because they're holding their fire. It just takes longer for that intellectual dimension of the conversation to get going because you've got to get articles published and they have to be refereed. And it, uh, that level of review was also always a year or two behind the uh, the the book's uh, publication date. So I would be surprised if I didn't see some pushback uh, down the line. Let me, I make a number of moves uh, with regard to neoliberalism. The first is to choose neoliberalism over conservatism. That's the obvious alternative. Uh, And I discuss it very frankly in my book why that was so, while recognizing there is no perfect term for describing this era in um, American history. Uh, When one does politics in America, one has to live with the distortion of terms it's true of liberalism, it's true of conservatism, it's true of neoliberalism in various ways, which has its own set of distortions. And to think that given our history and the kind of labeling that we have gone on uh, throughout American history from the days of Tammany Hall and the and the Bucktails to Roosevelt's theft of the liberal label from the classical liberals and applying it to what was really a soft social democracy to conservatism having as much in common with classical liberalism as with what we would recognize as being conservative in a Burkean sense. Uh, 
the language of American politics is messy and we need to agree on labels so we can get on with the two, four and six year elect, uh, election cycles. But that doesn't mean that we should be happy with the terms that we are sometimes stuck with. And sometimes unleashing a new term can be liberating, illuminating, and allow us to see things that we otherwise uh, would not see. I remember Daniel Rogers' response in dissent. He didn't like the term neoliberalism, too baggy, could mean too many things. He proposed market fundamentalism as an alternative, which for me just didn't do very much. I think neoliberalism is the best term we have if we want to see at the core of this period capitalism reinventing itself in a very powerful and uh, and and profound way. And I think because uh, political historians in America have favored the term conservatism, which of course is the term of American politics, uh, they have been too quick to uh, focus um, too much attention in the late 20th century on those elements of American politics that are genuinely conservative and reactionary, restoring Jim Crow, restoring the white male patriarch to position of power and authority in the family, um, resisting heterosexuality, strangling liberation movements. There are profoundly conservative elements in American society, but because of so much the historiography is focused on that, my feeling was that one of the central stories of the late 20th and early 21st century, which is about the rise and perhaps fall of um, a, a very distinct form of capitalism, was not getting the serious attention that it needed. And the term neoliberal allows me to focus squarely on questions of capitalism and political economy. So that is what sold me on it. As to what are the uh, forces propelling acceptance of this term beyond the publication of my book, which of course is much more important than the book itself. Uh, I would start now with Trump, but uh, with the financial collapse of 2008, uh, 2009, uh, in, in my telling of the 20th century, the rise and fall of, of political orders is very much tied to political crises. It was true of the rise of the New Deal order in the, in the um, 30s. It was true of the fall of the New Deal order and the rise of the neoliberal order in the 1970s, a period of very serious recession and, and economic distress. Uh, and the great crash of 2008, 2009, um, exposed the inequalities uh, and the fantasies of neoliberalism in ways that those um, distortions and fantasies had not been exposed before. And and the selling point of neoliberalism, because it's not, and here I differ from certain left critics of neoliberalism who um, have been the most frequent users of that term, uh, they see it mostly as an elite plot and project to dominate and undercut democracy and strangle the democratic rights of the masses. The neoliberal order has elements of that, but we cannot understand its success unless we understand its ability to tap into very um, deeply shared um, ideas and principles of freedom and individuality, which are so um, uh, deeply rooted in American consciousness and have been for the last uh, 200 years. Uh, so we can't understand neoliberalism staying power, its popularity, without understanding its ability to tap in something profound into the in the minds and consciousness consciousnesses of 
ordinary people. And uh, so this uh, is a very important element of the neoliberal story. I completely as we agree. The, go ahead. Go ahead. As as we just briefly, and then I'll I'll shut up for a moment. The uh, as we tell the story of neoliberalism's uh, collapse, we have to understand it as an international um, uh, story. And and and, and this is it, this is not to really diminish Trump. It's to uh, understand the degree to which Trump is part of a global phenomenon, uh, a, a sense of, of government having been run by um, elites uh, who were out of touch with the uh, the common people, who um, uh, who ignored um, the fact that globalization and neoliberal economies were creating enormous wealth, but also distributing it in a very inegalitarian way that there was a lot of there were a lot of losers under globalization and neoliberalism uh, and also a recognition that parliamentary democracies and here I include uh, Congress in parliamentary democracies even though it's not Congress is not technically a parliamentary system that that system of let's call it liberal democracy was no longer working too much compromise too much inability to solve the problems of a society so let us turn to to strong men who will be decisive and take action and the people will live through this strong man. And, and it's Trump and it's it's Orban and it's Putin and it's Erdogan, it's Bolsonaro, it's Modi in Indi India, it was Duarte in the Philippines. She fits this up to a certain point in China, even though it's nominally still a, a, a communist state. So the, the crisis of capitalism was global coming out of 2008, 2009. Uh, and the uh, we have to recognize this turn toward authoritarianism as a rejection of uh, a neoliberal economy and a neoliberal set of political principles that had been enshrined. Uh, and Trump is a national manifestation of that global trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a quick question about about almost the timing of it and how you think about the relations. Kind of get to the question of the neoliberalism's relationship to conservatism. I want to ask basically, what do you make of Paul Sabin's book on public citizens that suggests that the breakdown of the New Deal order happened? first at the hands of liberals before it happened at the hands of conservatives, and specifically Naderite criticisms of big government um, and the political tools they created, created fissures in the New Deal order uh, that uh, were kind of the broad idea of big government um, that uh, um, and the kind of political coalitions that sustained it uh, were, were, were harmed or broken down by the kind of Naderite criticisms before uh, Ronald Reagan ever came around. I like Paul Sabin's book. Um, before he published the book, <laughs> before he published the book, uh, he presented um, uh, an essay that encapsulated the argument for a book at, at a 25th anniversary conference for the rise and fall of the New Deal order, a book I co-edited with Steve Fraser in um, 1989. And and reading that article on another piece by a legal scholar um, in California. Rule, Rule Schiller, um, uh, also analyzing in, in, in similar ways. I, I don't know if I, I would say that um, the, the critique of the New Deal order came first from liberals or new, uh, a certain kind of liberal or a certain kind of new leftist, uh, but I would say that uh, the, uh, the origins of neoliberalism lie on the 
left as well as the right. And I make that claim very strongly and clearly in my book. And it's one of the claims that has generated um, quite a lot of controversy and uh, and debate. Uh, and some people, frankly, have taken uh, offense uh, at my treatment of of Ralph Nader. How could I how could I do this to the to the man who's stood on so many good principles over the last uh, 30, 40 years. But Paul Sabin's article, I was just con- beginning to conceive of my book at that time, and it helped me to see that something that I had sensed someone else very good and very smart at, at writing history was seeing as well. Uh, and the um, uh, to understand the role of the new left in this, not it's not the old left, it's the new left. Uh, and uh, the, the new left critique what they called the system in the 1960s. And this was an alliance of government and capitalism that had become impervious to popular control. Uh, And Nader contributed to this because his argument was that the agencies set up to regulate the economy have been captured by private industry and turned into instruments of capitalist rule. And thus, from that point of view, government had become as much the target as corporations. Now, these the view of these new leftists was never the same as uh, conservatives. They weren't simply trying to restore a free market. They were trying to restore meaningful democratic control over the entire economy. But, but uh, restoring that control re- meant removing um, government bureaucracies that had become tools of capital, uh, stripping away their power, attacking them, weakening them. Uh, Also, uh, Nader made a very important um, conceptual and theoretical move, uh, which altered the character of a lot of left politics in America. The left politics have been based on the working class and the needs of workers and the aspirations of labor. And Nader said, no, 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 the most important figure in America is not the worker, but the consumer. And our goal is to render the restore to that consumer sovereignty. And that, you know, that's a meaningful cause. And I don't mean to um, uh, to belittle it, but it began to uh, direct attention away from the distribution of power between capital and labor, where ultimately I would say um, the the politics of capital lies. And if you give up uh, on workers and the relationship of workers to capital at the point of production, if you deflect attention from that and you begin simply to try and address the needs of consumers, you lose important understanding of of how capitalism works and what needs to be done in order to redistribute some power from the rich to the poor. The other element of the new left, which I think contributed to neoliberalism, was uh, this profound and deep and meaningful individuality that uh, and, and individualism that one had to respect um, the ability of individuals to to go their own way, to do their own thing, to to. Uh, and uh, this um, uh, intersected with the. It wasn't the same as the conservative impulses to to free the citizen from government tyranny, but it often moved in a similar direction. And 
it worked to dissolve some of the institutions of regulation that have been so important to the New Deal order, thus greasing the skid, so to speak, and accelerating the ability of a new free market neoliberal order to rise. So in your answer to Sam a little bit, one question ago, you um, you said it's important to take a global perspective. And I think that's right. And I think that there's also my one question about like taking a global perspective on this period of history. I think what you'd say is the two most important events uh, were the end of the Cold War and uh, the economic rise of China, and which is the greatest uh, end of poverty or limitation of poverty in world history by a huge, huge margin. Um, unless you want to count the Industrial Revolution. Like those would be the two, like, huge, huge things. Um, so my question is, wasn't the neoliberal order kind of great um, in that way if the two things that it major achieved were the end of uh, this kind of long period of, of, war, of, of, um, of, of kind of nuclear arms stasis and, um, and uh, the removal of poverty from... Now, there are all sorts of local harms and bads and, you know, but again, you're a historian who's take, speaking on a global scale. I would have thought that those are the two events that if I were stepping back, I would immediately, I'd put in the foreground. And other things, again, you know, deregulation of the tr- the the, tr- uh, the shipping industry is important and I'm very much in favor of, but is a, um, but is a, of a second order type concern to these big, big, big global change, which are themselves pretty deeply, uh, particularly the rise of China, uh, the economic rise of China, uh, like, causal or causally related in or kind of deeply related to this neoliberal change. So what would you say to, some, to to that kind of argument, which is like, you know, stepping back, if we read writing history books 100 years from now, those are the two facts we'd care about, and that that should animate our anal- analysis of these kind of ideological movements. Well, we probably agree that the Soviet Union was a system of tyranny that deserved to be buried. I mean, you and I, uh, well, Sam can weigh in on, on this later. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I, I, I agree with that. I just don't agree that neoliberalism caused the end of communism. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, I think some of the the turn toward neoliberalism uh, I think caused problems for for co- communism and made. There was a time when the Soviet Union could um, think that it was a, a genuine competitor and alternative economically to the West, and that was the 50s and 60s. Uh, and then the technological revolution that set in, which is bound up with the rise of neoliberalism, made um, uh, made sustaining that kind of command economy much more difficult to succeed. Uh, the the um, and so the the. Uh, the end of the Soviet Union and its collapse is is an achievement of sort, theoretically, for human freedom. The question is, what comes after that, um, and how would um, Eastern Europe and other parts of the world that have been following the Soviet model, what what path would they take? Uh, and the what what the United States encouraged through its triumphalism and this embrace of um, kind of unfettered capitalism in the Eastern Bloc um, didn't go very well, uh, and uh, I think is related to some of the problems that are coming out of Eastern Europe at this time, in terms of Russia and in terms of Ukraine, and the instability and the warfare that's going on uh, at that time is rooted in you know in in not just in the in the politics of Russia and its 
and its satellites and its aligning countries, it's also rooted in this rush toward global unfettered capitalism uh, that uh, I would say was not the best path of development uh, for bringing these countries out of uh, communist tyranny. Now, if you're suggesting that an achievement of neoliberalism was the ability to um, shift some of the distribution of wealth from the West to the non-West, to parts of the world that didn't have it, that I think um, uh, is on the positive side of the ledger uh, for neoliberalism. There has been a redistribution of of wealth in the world uh, of the sort that did not exist um, before that time. But even in terms of that redistribution, um, it has not been able to focus on internal relations in China. Yes, there is a, um, a, a big and thriving middle class in China that did not exist before, uh, but the problems of poverty in China are still intense um, as they are in India and as they are in uh, in 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 places like Brazil, uh, and the um, and the triumph of a neoliberal way of ordering the economy also made it impossible to deal with um, serious divisions that emerged during the post-Soviet era in the West. The increasing inequality between rich and poor, the promise that markets freed from all fetters would lift all boats. Um, and this is not what occurred. The uh, inequality in America by the first decade of the 21st century was back to the late 19th and early 20th century. And um, a middle class that had established itself on the basis of the grand class compromise of the New Deal order, uh, that middle class could feel itself vanishing or the opportunities for its children uh, vanishing. And also, uh, this is not an excuse for this behavior, but. Um, uh, uh, but the, uh, the, the white working class of the West not only understood that they were losing out to elites within their own countries, uh, what made their loss in some ways unbearable is the loss of the privilege of whiteness because many of, at least they could still claim for a, a period of time that, um, as tough as they had it, um, it was still better to be in the West than anywhere else. And suddenly these vigorous middle classes in places like China are arising. And I think that informs some of the ethno-nationalism or it, it inclined class grievance to take an ethno-nationalist turn in the early decades of the 21st century. And uh, so this is an example of, uh, of a redistribution of resources that um, is happening, uh, but a lot of the consequences of that both in the countries of uh, beyond the West and the countries of the West are left unattended and left to fester, uh, which helps to explain the turmoil of our own time. So I I totally buy your answer to, to David. I don't know if you've seen Fritz Bartel's new book, but the argument there is that kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the big transformations in the global economy of the 1970s with the end of the Bretton Woods system and the oil shock sort of placed um, pressures on both um, capitalist and communist governments uh, and really forced them both into austerity politics. And it was just that 
the West could survive those for longer. Um, but your your main answer, I think that uh, in a way, um, neoliberalism is much more the beneficiary than the cause of the end of communism is totally right. And, you know, we really ought to be talking about kind of, you know, alternatives that, you know, were rejected in this crucial period of the uh, of 1989 uh, and the 1990s. So I want to go back to a few of the 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 highlights of the book, at least for me. I mean, you've you've mentioned one, which is just the kind of amazing theory of of Bill Clinton as a kind of you know Eisenhower of normalizing the neoliberal uh, political order. What I want to get at is the touchy thing you said that has caused some some stir because obviously you 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 know are are with authors like Melinda Cooper and showing that on the right in the traditional histories of conservatism we tell there was fusionism there was moral conservatism of the religious right that you know was was providing the votes for an economically libertarian project and people like Gertrude Himmelfarb are are central to that uh let's call it marriage of convenience. But the the edgy thing you claim is that on the left, you know, let's leave out Ralph Nader. Um, there was also a move to neoliberalism. Now, I, I, I'm with you, but I guess someone might say, look, uh, there there was the new left and it's uh, the, the boomer embrace of, let's call it lifestyle autonomy uh, and a libertarian approach to their ways of life, including the rise of new, new, um, you know, private freedoms in, you know, in the domains of, you know, family relationships uh, and so forth. Um, But they remained economically, you know, on on the left. And so um, we, we have to have some reason to think that the the autonomy and the desire for it unleashed by the 60s kind of abetted economic libertarianism. Because, you know, a lot of people, if you ask boomers, will say, well, no, we were always for the Democrats. We, you know, we wanted redistribution. We wanted higher tax rates and pushing for, you know, gay rights uh, was, was, you know, shouldn't be blamed or even associated with. Um, the, 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 the economic libertarianism that the right was pushing. So, you know, what do you say to that kind of, kind of response to the, the, the associations that you make with, um, libertarianism and the direction of, you know, um, kind of the, the left in American society? Well, it's a big, it's a big question. Um, uh, I think the first thing I would say is that the new left was a vast and a form of amorphous movement, and I, I, I was at the tail end of the new left uh, in terms of my own life experience. So um, I was not in university in the '60s. I was in university in the early '70s, but. Until seventy three, you could have an nineteen seventy three. You can have an you could have an elective affinity with the new left. In other words, the new left didn't the the sixties didn't stop in nineteen seventy. It stopped, I would say, nineteen seventy three or 
74. So someone like myself, you could easily affiliate with the new left. And I was powerfully influenced by the new left in, in all sorts of ways. So I don't come to this as an outsider. And um, I come to this as um, and not quite an insider, but someone who was very involved in, in the circles of the new left. And one thing to recognize is that there was always a core of the new left that was committed principally to um, to economic redistribution or marrying dreams of personal liberation to uh, uh, to uh, commitment to economic redistribution and uh, and that core remained um, and, and dedicated to these goals and they're still with us today and um, uh, and so I don't. Um, want to say that it was impossible to pursue visions of personal liberation and and a desire to rein in the engine of capital accumulation at the same time. I think there have been tens of, tens of thousands of people coming out of the new left experience who remain dedicated to that th throughout their life and throughout their lifetime experience. Uh, but there are all kinds of other people who whose exposure to the new left was partial or they entered at a certain point or for whom lifestyle and personal liberation was much more important from the start than um uh uh than reigning in capital accumulation uh and so those I, those sorts of people i think are are more easily brought into a neoliberal way of thinking about the economy. Uh, and because once you elevate the individual to a position of power, you're not that far away from Ralph Nader's conception of making the uh, consumer sovereign, and you're not that far away from certain um, genuine conservatives or genuine neoliberals uh, who are most interested in just freeing the individual in every way and constraining the power of the state to tell them how to live into freeing market forces in all their power. Now into this, we have to factor the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about this, um, Sam, in, in, in response. And, by the, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was not just about the collapse of an imperial communist empire and the, and the disaggregation of what had been an empire into constituent states. It was the death of a dream of socialist emancipation that had been the most spectacular project of human reinvention that had been seen in the previous 200 years, and in which socialists and leftists of all sorts had invested extraordinary hopes. I have had people tell me, say, well, Gary, we knew by the 70s there was no dream of socialist emancipation left in the world anymore. And I say, well, Actually, I don't think I don't believe that to be true. It certainly had taken a beating, but part of the energy of the new left and part of those people who you talked about earlier who re, who remain committed to a program of serious constraining of capitalism and economic redistribution, uh, they remain committed to this idea through the 1970s and 80s, despite how unpopular or how marginal it was in fact becoming in the larger uh, uh, political realm. And what do you do, though, when the Soviet Union itself renounces the dream and declares it to be a fraud and unworkable? Uh, what do you so the, the dream didn't die in the 70s and 80s. It took a battering, but it was still alive. And then and then this collapse. And I think it was um, a moment of radical dislocation 
for radicals of all sorts. I don't think we've discussed about this, this discussed this a lot enough. And I don't I don't think we've aired it enough, in part because how do you discuss the significance of an absence? Uh, how do you discuss the the how a the death of a dream of secular socialist emancipation? How do you how do you um uh how do you make sense of uh, suddenly it's not there anymore. You can't access it. And, and, and the finality of the Soviet Union's collapse. Um, uh, th- there's a, a left-wing version of the end of history, a left-wing version of Fukuyama yet to be written. Maybe you will write it. Um, you could do a good job with that. Uh, but it's a, very, it's, a, it's a very significant moment. And I've been struck by the lack of commentary on it. Uh, which is why I've gone back to Fukuyama uh, after really not paying, you know, being very critical of him in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century. Obviously, history did not end, but the something profound did end, and that was the last universal alternative to democratic capitalism passed from the world, one could say. And that was a profound rupture in human history, I think, that we haven't satisfactorily come to terms with. And there's a vacuum and there's an uncertainty then about which way to turn. And I think this then facilitated um, a turn to um, liberation movements as providing an alternative path toward emancipation uh, that could no longer be provided by the old socialist model. And it doesn't, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that um, people didn't continue to try and carry on with their programs of economic redistribution and socialist re-engineering of the economy, but it was an incredibly hard thing to do and to sustain. And also at, at the, in the 1990s, new forms of socialism are struggling to be born, and we see a manifestation of it in the battle for Seattle and 1999. That's on the one hand very powerful, but also very ephemeral. It's it's here. It's powerful. It's gone. Um, uh, uh, shortly after that, in answer to your question, why are we only seeing the re, the embrace of the neoliberal label now? Um, one answer that one might give is that there had to be a vigorous left to debate this, not just to announce it, but to debate it. And that vigorous left did not exist in 2007 and 2008. I think the Obama presidency would have been quite different uh, if he had had a challenge, if Bernie Sanders and the rebirth of the left that happened in the second decade of the 21st century, if that had been in place in 2007, 2008, if Obama had leverage on the left, the politics of his administration uh, might have been different, but it didn't exist. And so one of the ways of thinking about the last 30 years is is the struggle to regain the dream of some kind of socialist emancipation after the death of communism. And how could it not spend 30 years in the wilderness after a a collapse of, of, of that magnitude? And given these circumstances, I think it facilitated a a tighter embrace of liberation movements having to do with race and sexuality and gender. Um, And this became the repository of dreams. And by saying that, I don't mean to belittle the liberation or these are important, genuinely 
crucial emancipatory movements, uh, but they um, they were also flourishing in a period when an older way of dreaming about emancipation simply died. I think that's very deep, and and I'll just take a one second to think along with you because I I think you're moving beyond you know a a really important story that is also in your book that the very existence in the Cold War of this rival you know tyrannical empire um, elicits more class compromise in the West than might have otherwise occurred. But you you you're now saying something else, which is that. Communism before 1989 also had a symbolic or even spiritual significance in the West uh, that there could be an alternative. And that collapse, I think, leads a lot of people who even have, you know, believe in their heart of hearts in some more just world to deprioritizing class uh, as the focal point of their efforts. And the, the story would have to be not that there, it was wrong to rectify mistakes in the left, which had always been racialized and gendered uh, and, you know, and so forth uh, before, um, but that, you know, a, a class insensitive way of attacking uh, these various forms of exclusion prevailed. Uh, and so the priority was ways of thinking about emancipation that did not intersect class. And only in that way can you get a result like a Supreme Court that is the most business friendly in history in our second Gilded Age, but is also, thanks to one man, Anthony Kennedy, endorsing some forms of personal autonomy, saving abortion for a few decades, uh, authoring the gay marriage opinion that the, the left celebrates. And yet, you know, the, their own deprioritization or delinking of class from those emancipation struggles also is creating this n- new, n- new backlash, um, Ironically, some of it comes from the heart of the old white male beneficiaries of the New Deal order, as you call it. So um, I, I want to ask a last question just because time is passing. I, I want to mention in, in it just for a second that, you know, one of the, the finest interventions in this book concerns the relation of neoliberalism to American liberalism. But let's leave that aside to talk about the, the kind of uh, really, you know, pressing question: Why you think that the neoliberal political order fell? Because that—that's really the only place in the book where I think I—I'm not sure you're right. So, could you give? Could you lay out the case you make, um, and we could have a little exchange about it? Uh, frankly, I'm not sure I'm right either, Sam. Uh, and the <laughs> the first uh, the first iteration of of my of publishing on this subject, um, which you may know, was an article in the um, Transactions of the Royal Historical Society based on a lecture I, I gave, and mm-hmm. the title was "The Rise and Fall Question Mark of the Neoliberal Order or the American Neoliberal Order." Um, and uh, we can speak as fellow historians. Um, 
that when you're uh, that you you write contemporary history or you write about the current moment at your peril. Not, I'm not speaking about you. I'm speaking about all all, all of us. Uh, because you, it's it's very hard to distinguish the uh, what's phenomenal, you know, from the what's epiphenomenal, what's what's real and enduring from what's passing, and we live. This is a very cluttered moment. All sorts of things are happening, uh, but to identify with certainty uh, that uh, uh, that the phenomenal story is the passing of the neoliberal order, and the story of persistence is epiphenomenal, should come under. Um, uh, examination uh, and uh, and debate. Uh, if an order ends, <clears throat> it's not the same thing as as neoliberalism ending. Mm. Uh, a neoliberal order ending means it's 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 it loses its ability to organize the political landscape and to dominate the political landscape and to compel opponents to plan its terms. I think in that sense, the neoliberal order as it existed in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century uh, no longer exists uh, uh, anymore. While we must recognize that there will be residual elements of the neoliberal order that have become baked into institutions uh, and will live with us as elements of the new deal order persisted into the neoliberal order. And I think a key question about persistence has to do with the the global financial system, which is the strongest evidence, I think, for the persistence of the neoliberal um, order, uh, and it it there and that uh, financial system is still pretty much intact and still carries influence and power it did uh, during the heyday of the neoliberal order. And if you think of the power of that institution, those sets of institutions, one can see in the future a politics built around perhaps the recovery or the desire to uh, restore the neoliberal order because some of its key institutions are are still in place. And if we see a recovery, that will be the, the, the form it takes. Uh, as for the, the changing world that we live in, I sometimes talk uh, in a shorthand way about the four uh, neoliberal freedoms. <laughs> These are not the four Rooseveltian freedoms of 1941, but it's a useful shorthand. It's uh, uh, free movement of people, free movement of goods, free movement of information, free movement of capital. This is for a neoliberal world to work and dominate. The, these freedoms need to be globalized. And I think in the heyday of the neoliberal order, we didn't even think about it because it was the world in which we swam, right? The uh, free movement of information, free movement of people, free movement of capital, um, um, free movement of goods. Uh, but think about what's happened in the um, last 10 years. Uh, the free movement of people is being challenged everywhere uh, and intensifying really on a daily basis. Uh, and the climate crisis is only going to intensify the, the, the raising of borders the volume of, of global goods, total merchandise moving internationally peaked in 2008 and has not exceeded that level. Protectionism in 2000, in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century was a dirty word and it no longer is. We don't call it protectionism, we call it managed trade. Uh, it's in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. One of the significant non-acts of the Biden administration was not to remove tariffs the Trumpian tariffs on China. We, until recently, we just assumed that we would have a single world of information with us forever. 
but there's a digital cold war taking shape china wants to uh, uh separate its information world from the rest of the world and and will probably succeed and may well succeed in doing so uh putin would do, like to do the same in russia erdogan the same in turkey uh the the they want to have gates through which they can control the flow of information into their society the most durable freedom has been the um uh the free movement of um capital uh that's been the most protected freedom and you could say that may be the most important freedom of the neoliberal order uh but ukraine has thrown all that into um into into doubt not only because the sanctions imposed on russia have been the most severe uh, imposed on any country in any time in terms of volume of assets being tied up but it's it's compelled nations and corporations to think differently about the business that they do what uh, uh and of course ukraine is not just about ukraine it's about taiwan and what about if china uh, attacks taiwan as russia has attacked ukraine uh what are the economic implications of that well you've got to figure out what goods you can't do without and and if china is out of the global system where you're going to get the resources and the manufactured goods and 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 corporations are thinking how can we assure a steady flow of material given a world of war that may be taking shape and perhaps we need these resources closer to home perhaps we need them within our borders every country now is talking about an industrial strategy which is runs contrary to the neoliberal world states are saying what resources do we need what was what must we manufacture at home that we can't afford to contract out to some distant provider no matter how cheap the labor there so if we talk if we see the erosions of these four freedoms from the heyday of the neoliberal neoliberal order it's been profound and it suggests to me that we are indeed moving into um, a different world uh the the future world of an ethno eth, ethno nationalist authoritarian uh world is is pretty clear for us to see i think what's been slower to develop is the progressive alternative to that and that's um, what has to be fleshed out and, and urgently. But I would also say that I've been um, amazed at how much um, uh, responses I've gotten to the book from people in investment communities, financial communities, um, uh, politics, uh, beginning to think differently about a future in ways that they were not discussing Five or ten years ago, so it's all very preliminary, uh, but I think it's also quite generative, and that uh, 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 has persuaded me to think that we are witnessing the decline and breakup of something and the emergence of something new. Well, that helps me. Uh, it's an amazing answer because, among other things, it clarifies that you know, as as you're thinking about it, a political order can fall without being replaced. Uh, and then there could be an interregnum period of open struggle uh, over what will succeed it, uh, even once it's gone. And maybe, maybe then you're right that the fall has occurred. Um, and you know the the kind of stakes of our time become much you know more in a way dramatic. And and in that spirit, we you know without being Marxists, we're left liberals. We can you know cite this old Marxist statement. You know, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. So what will it take uh, for the right, 
the right side to get to replace this old political order. Gary, this has been amazing, and uh, we're extremely grateful that you could join us. The book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, and you should uh, buy it or at least read it. Uh, Thanks so much. Thank you, Sam. It's been great talking with you and David. Thank you so much. 